KPFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay with us for a stone's throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, July the 9th, 2013. And today I'm throwing myself at the feminine geniuses once more, my literary saints. My These are my sacred texts, you know. The older ones lead straight to our contemporary writers, you know, uh... All my dead dears, uh, they're just, what is the word for that, uh, ancestors, no, uh, they're the creatrix, the, the, the source. Anyway, I think of women writers like knots on a rope, you know, these are the women who pull me out of the pit, the, the well, I guess, uh, where I'm struggling not to drown, yes, my, uh, Raison d'etre. Last time I was talking a little bit about the, uh, oh, I guess I have to say patriarchal view of the great women writers. Uh, I'm going to do, let's see, an old friend today and then the Brontes. Uh, I was trying to say last time that the women writers of the uh, 19th century were not um, privileged women and they certainly weren't uh the the wispy the wispy uh repressed spinsters you know sort of thing uh Nathaniel Hawthorne anyway uh i'm looking here yes uh example of that is dante oh dante gabriel rossetti he liked them now he got it uh alice james over in england she got it she <laughs> she said she said the critics were so stupid they don't understand uh, when something is really first rate. Uh, anyway, my favorite review of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights in 1854 here, Dante Gabriel Rossetti writes, It is a fiend of a book. The action is laid in hell. Only it seems places and people have English names there. <laughs> now, uh, today, I want to start with a poem sent to me by a friend. Uh, mm, let's see. She's not teaching at Rutgers anymore. She's an emeritus. I don't think she's as old as I am. Uh, her name is Alicia 
Ostrakar. She has, oh, 14 books of poetry out. Uh, mm, yes, here she's still teaching at the uh, MFA program at Drew University. She's the sort of poet who will never stop teaching. Uh, I just found one poem in the book she sent me, uh, The Book of Life, she calls it. Yes. Said Emily Bronte says, there's the Bible and then there's the book of nature. Anyway, Alicia Ostriker, I have uh, written about and talked to you about in the past and will continue to do so. But just to begin today to show you that uh, women still have, uh, what is it, uh, the I, the Cassandra uh, knowledge. This one this poem is called Listening to Public Radio. <laughs> it begins with a French phrase, a little uh, epigram. Uh, let's see, it means the struggle continues. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I think the truth is uh, I've ceased to struggle. Uh, I just stay home and read my New Yorkers. But most People who listen to KPFA are still out there struggling. Uh, I think my um, my days now are spent just trying to survive the the disaster de jour. This week has been a, a real bitch. That stuff overwhelms. I must just turn off the media. If I can't do something about it, what's the use of wringing my hands? Anyway... I'll go water the ferns and paint a picture, but let me start with with Alicia's poem, Listening to Public Radio. Uh, one every morning, it feels increasingly like the world of the 30s our parents described and we have read about when fascism knew what it wanted and descended over Europe like a light frost that suddenly becomes a blizzard, or like volcano ash before it erupts. Everyone saw it, but nobody could stop it. Or not enough people wished to stop it. So nature took its course. The book of Job became true. The millions and the millions disappeared. Two, I am like one of those sheep in the hymn, <laughs> sheep may safely graze, or a lamb in this psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. When the wolves come growling from the woods, I am not prepared I have no idea what to do. I would have been trundled off to the camps uh, so easily without putting up a fight, that's right. I am among the cows, trotting, farting, Eating, sleeping, cowed, bellowing toward the narrow gate. 
The metal head restraint, the stink up ahead, pouring out like a river, and after that, the stun gun, the blade, the steel hook, the axes. Ultimately, the plastic wrapping that protects the meat from air. Now, I'm ashamed that I had to change a couple words here. I should have told you before. Uh, those cows that were trotting and farting and the other things they did was not eating and sleeping, but it's a shame that the FCC doesn't allow us to uh, write poetry, to read poetry the way it's written. My gosh. Uh, anyway, that's Alicia Osterker. I'm going to get back to uh, her work. I have... Let's see, I have three of her books that I'm working on now, but uh, that one is called The Book of Life. You can find her work, I'm sure, on the net. Uh, last name is spelled O-S-T-R-I-K-E-R, Alicia Ostriker, The Book of Life. Uh, see, here's a review. Her voice is by turns, bitter, lyrical, cajoling, ironic. Her quarrel is a prophet's quarrel with a divine presence. Right, that's it. She's up there doing battle. <laughs> doing battle with uh, God. Same as Emily Bronte. Uh, Emily Bronte writes, uh, well, she writes of the presence, the masculine presence she calls a tyrant. And, of course, she takes refuge in her notion that uh, God or divinity or her sacred beliefs can transcend the uh, oppression in which she lives. Uh, <laughs> lots of luck, girl. Uh, anyway, yesterday when I end, last Tuesday when I ended, I wanted to tell you about... Uh, the uh, village that the Brontes lived in. I am of the opinion that what gets written has a great deal to do with where people live and what's going on around them. Uh, I think, uh, let's see, I think the best thing to do is to go back to the, uh, go back to the the graveyard, the places, the places where uh, these women were born and grew up. Haworth is the name of their little village in, in uh, Yorkshire. It was one of the unhealthiest villages in England during the Bronte years. Uh, it was more hazardous to human health than the slums of London during that same era. Open privies and dung heaps were the rule. <laughs> I was thinking, yes, uh, Mumbai, it's like, yes, the dark hole of Calcutta. Anyway, dung heaps. Uh, is it any wonder those children fled to the moors rather than try to go among their neighbors in the village? In 1820, Haworth had no drainage system, and it possessed not one water closet. The parsonage was surrounded on three sides by a graveyard, in which there was an average of two burials a week. 
the well which supplied the Bronte sisters with their drinking water was sunk into this cemetery. Thus, they literally drank death every day. Reports of the health inspectors indicate that the church smelled moribund. Quote here from the uh, report, yes, health inspectors report. The exhalations from the remains of past generations inside the building, the church, have long rendered it a most undesirable place in which to worship without being too pungently reminded of the ultimate end of all things. <laughs> That's an end, end of the quote from the uh, village inspector in 1820. Now, these graves uh, were close set. They were covered over with stone slabs. There were no trees at that time. So decomposition was not allowed to take its course. The water supply was poor and often gave out completely in the summer heat when typhus raged. The parsonage had one double-seated privy out in the yard. Got that? <laughs> one privy. Imagine what it must have been like to live in that tiny house with six children and two servants. Now, Let's see, here's more from the government inspector's report uh, later. There's one in 1850 which describes a situation in Haworth which had not altered much over the 30 years. Quote, two of the privies used by a dozen families each are in the public street, not only within view of the houses, but exposed to the gaze of passers-by whilst a third, <laughs> as though even in such a situation were too private, is perched upon an eminence commanding the whole length of the main street. The cesspit of this privy lies below it and opens by a small door into the main street. Occasionally this door is burst open by the superincumbent weight of night soil and ashes, and they overflow into the public street, and at all times a disgusting effluvium escapes. End of quote. It's no wonder that the Brontes' Aunt Branwell, their mother's sister, right? Their mother was dead by this time. Uh, Aunt Branwell wore what were called pattens or raised shoes that were necessary for walking in the streets. Uh, I keep thinking to myself, what on earth did they do with those long skirts? Yuck. Anyway, I'm giving you these details to suggest that at the time the Bronte sisters wrote, they were trying to escape, to transmute the mordant realities of their world. They did not lie about their times. They only tried to shape reality, to give it a meaning and significance. Emily tried to create an order where, in truth, she saw only chaos. I suppose she thought that was her Christian duty. <laughs> an ordered universe, I think, uh, suggests the possibility of God 
Well, actually, yes, these women were romantics, uh, after all. You know, Byron was their literary saint. I still think that the Christianity of the Brontes was never soft or sensual. Uh, Charlotte and Emily both like to describe the Catholic or what they called Romish religiosity. Uh, they met that in Brussels. Uh, they had contempt, of course. Uh, they were stern and stoic. They were daughters of the Calvinist cloth. You remember Calvin. He was the one, <laughs> like, it's like something we're watching in the uh, Middle East now. Uh, I think Calvin actually cut off, uh, cut off arms. I'm not sure, but a woman who let her, her, uh, arms show, uh, at least the, uh, from the elbow down even, that was, uh, what is that? Not just a sin, but a crime. Uh, anyway, almost no one could have been less well equipped for a life of self-denial than these oh-so-vulnerable early Victorian geniuses. Uh, they had no more material wealth than the peasants and laborers among whom they lived. However, they were required to keep up a show, a show of gentility and refinement. Uh, Charlotte writes to a friend, she said she tried this newfangled thing, a shower bath. She found it most refreshing. Imagine living with no running water and the sanitary situation in which they lived. Uh, and then think, <laughs> I hesitate to even mention it. Uh, think of the rags they used to absorb menstrual blood and so forth. Uh, <laughs> most of all, there was crippling cold and damp. Candles were expensive, and the sisters would sometimes walk around and around the dining table in the evening in the hopes of wearing themselves out and getting a good night's sleep. After the death of all her siblings, Charlotte continued this habit alone. Her eyes gave her a good deal of trouble, and it was hard to read in the evening. Round and round the table she went, ah. Now, the mortality rate in Haworth equaled that recorded in the London slums of the period. Average age at death was at times as low as 19.6 years. <laughs> 41 out of a 100 children died before their sixth birthday. The first public health act in England was not passed until the 1840s. The act made a connection between the burial of the dead in towns and the prevalence of disease. Apparently the notion that cadavers contaminate was a new notion. Even in the hospitals, there was little effort to separate the living from the dead. I was thinking, uh, I wrote this years ago, and I did look up uh, earlier, Earlier peoples uh, in Rome, in ancient Rome, they had the good sense to bury people outside the city. Hmm. Uh, during the Bronte years, the germ theory of disease uh, had yet to be 
promulgated and the physicians often went directly from examining a corpse to delivering a baby uh, without washing their hands. Mothers died of septicemia or childbed fever all over Europe and England. It is hard for most of us to imagine the prevalence of so much death on a day-to-day basis, at least in this country. I keep noticing that, uh, as Alicia Ostricker wrote in her poem in which she compares our times to the the time in Germany between the two great wars, uh, the Weimar Republic, right? Uh, I keep looking around and seeing throwbacks to earlier, much earlier times. Uh, if you look, if you look at Syria today, uh, I noticed this. I think well, I've noticed it all my life. But Rwanda was the first time it hit me in the solar plexus. Uh, it's a matter of scale, I think. Uh, anyway, for the Brontes, eternity was no metaphor. Sitting in the parsonage, Charlotte Bronte writes, uh, There have I sat on the low bedstead, my eyes fixed on the window through which no other landscape than a monstrous stretch of moorland and a grey church tower rising from the center of a churchyard so filled with graves that the rank weeds and coarse grass scarce had room to shoot up between the monuments. For Emily, all this bleak world was a source of passion. Uh, Here is a poem by Emily. Uh, She uses her environment to fuel her art. I guess that's the trick, I think, of those who write in prison. Emily writes, There is a spot mid barren hills where winter howls and drives the rain. The house is old. The trees are bare. Moonless above bends twilight's dome. The mute bird sitting on the stone. The dark moss Dripping from the wall, the thorn trees gaunt, the walks o'ergrown. I love them, how I love them all. And of course, Emily Bronte, uh, the monumental, the most grandiose of these sisters, uh, she wrote about the graves of Kathy and Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. She used the graves as metaphors. Love beyond the grave, you know. Uh, in the novel, the long-dead Kathy, who died in childbirth at the age of 23, uh, she is joined by her recently deceased husband, Edgar Linton, and Heathcliff is very angry. Uh, he opens her grave... He discovers her body has scarcely decomposed. Perhaps Emily Bronte had seen such things in the churchyard that surrounded her home. Perhaps it is true that the heavy stone slabs used on the tombs did slow down decomposition. Heathcliff tells his housekeeper, Nellie, about his plans for joining Kathy in the earth one day.
These are the words of Heathcliff. He says, Yesterday I got the sexton who was digging Linton's grave. That's the Kathy's uh, husband. I got the sexton who was digging Linton's grave to remove the earth off her coffin lid, and I opened it. I thought once I would have stayed there when I saw her face again. It is hers yet. He had hard work to stir me, but he said it would change if the air blew on it, and so I struck one side of the coffin loose and covered it up. Not Linton's side, damn him. I bribed the sexton to pull it away. When I'm laid there, when I am lying beside her, uh, I will. I, I want him to slide mine out too. Uh, and then by the time Linton gets to us, he will not know which is which. Now, scenes like this are not uncommon in the literature of the early 19th century. There's a description given by George Sand in her History of My Life. She wrote about her last farewell to her father. This is reality, not a novel. Uh, she kisses his lips. It's ten years after his burial. And she goes to his grave and uh, lifts up... Uh, his face, his lips, during the funeral of her grandmother, her tutor's head discovers that her father, uh, no, her father's head, yes, her father's head is uh, coming apart from his body, and uh, her tutor is upset. He doesn't want her to see this. Uh, actually, her father's neck was broken in a fall from his horse, <laughs> and... Uh, it is at this point that George Sand enters the crypt and kisses her father goodbye. She never had an opportunity to do so while he was alive. Uh, George Sand seemed to find the experience very moving. Mm, I remember the exhumed body of Marguerite Gautier in the novel uh, uh, The Lady of the Camellias in 1848. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the exhumed exhumation of Lizzie Seidel, the young wife of Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Rossetti buried his libretti in her coffin, but then some seven years later he had recovered from his grief and decided to dig them up. Lizzie had killed herself with an overdose of laudanum, uh, you know, laudanum, the wine or tincture of opium. The story goes that her golden hair had kept on growing and that it filled her coffin. Golden Lizzie is perhaps the woman made famous as the tormented creature in Christina Rossetti's poem, Goblin Market. Yes, Christina Rossetti was Dante's sister. Her story is fantastic. Uh, I love Christina Rossetti. She was born on my birthday. No, I was born on her birthday. <laughs> Yes. Uh, the 19th century was as close to its dead as we are estranged from ours. Edgar Allan Poe was perhaps too close and mingled too intimately with the dust of the grave. Still, those who forget the taste of death often forget the flavor of life. 
Life in Yorkshire for the Bronte sisters was miserable and mystic, severe and sensual, holy and horrible all at once. The wretched world of reality drove them into subjectivity. Fantasy was a necessity. Now, I have to stop there. I have so much material on the Brontes. I'll try to finish it up next Tuesday. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. I will be back on the air at this time next Tuesday. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow out of sight. Southnet Music invites you to their fourth annual Benefit Reggae Festival. Beneficial Reggae 2013 on Saturday, July 13th at the Yakaama Indian Education Center in Forestville. This year's headlining artists will be the Grammy Award winning Black Uguru with Everton Blender, E. Tawe, Culture Knox, Joseph Israel, and Gary Nesta Pine. Families and friends can enjoy the natural amphitheater and an alcohol-free venue, Roots Reggae, craft and food vendors, and a free kid zone. Gates open at 11 a.m. and the music ends after midnight. A portion of the proceeds go directly to Yaka Ama. Children 13 and under are free. For more information, go to www.beneficialreggae.com or call 707-887-1541.